0: Al Jazeera Podcast. A new era for BRICS nations. The five members of the bloc have agreed to invite six new ones, and they're planning new currency arrangements aimed at reducing reliance on the US dollar. So, can BRICS really shake up the world's political and economic architecture? I'm Nick Clark, and you're listening to the Inside Story Podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now from berlin we have ben arras who's the founder and editor-in-chief of bne intellinews a business media company focusing on emerging markets from johannesburg arena murasan a senior researcher at the institute for global dialogue and south african a south african foreign policy specialist and from beijing aina tangen a china affairs analyst and senior fellow at the taihe Institute. a warm welcome to all of you uh, ben arras if i may start with you so BRICS is here, bigger and better than before, you might say. A force for the good, you'd say?
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I think what's going on is fairly historic in so much as um, their view of the BRICS themselves is that, you know, we've been emerging markets, we've been struggling uh, with poverty, with getting basic things in place. And this has all been happening in the last 30 years since the socialist experiment ended, failed with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and everybody's embraced um, markets. Uh, so the ideology, uh, we're now on the same page. Uh, and uh, you have 3 billion people in uh, you know, the West, the capitalist system, and they've been joined by 3 billion uh, from the socialist system. And after 30 years, these emerging markets are beginning to emerge. Um, and they're now reaching out and starting to say, look, we want our place at the top table. We want to have more of a say in the way the world is run. We want our interests represented, um, because they're underrepresented. They're underrepresented in things like the the U.S. Security Council and in the various international bodies. And so what they're doing now is clubbing together in order to represent their interests and come as a body to what they see as the unipolar world, run by the West, specifically the U.S. And and that's created various tensions. But there's also many divisions within the, the, the BRICs themselves. Some of them want to cooperate, see it as an economic club. Some of them, like China and Russia specifically, want to challenge the West um, and be a lot more aggressive. And within the group itself, um, there's a lot of dissent about how that should be done.
0: Right, we'll come on to those divisions in a moment or two. But first, Irina speaking from Johannesburg, for a country like South Africa, what's wrong with the way things work right now? What's wrong with the status quo and Western institutions like the IMF and the World Bank?
2: Look, when you think about why the BRICS came together, they say that their voices were not heard across, you know, the global economic platforms and the infrastructure already available. And for a country like South Africa that feels how currencies move immensely, this has immense potential to make a difference. But at the same time, while the BRICS are able to come together and strive for, you know, some kind of equitable world order, it's important to remember that while the BRICS want to, to strive for a more equitable world order as a grouping, uh, they are first and foremost acting in their national interest and muddling through you know, very uncertain global realities. Now, for South Africa, it's about how well it's able to domesticate this kind of BRICS agenda. What is it able to do with it in terms of taken these these declarations, taking these bilateral relationships and making the best out of it. And from here, we've seen, you know, two very key elements, you know, expansion. The last time BRICS expanded, it was in 2010 with South Africa being included and the alternative payment systems as Zora Malaposa gave marching orders to look at what can be done. And, you know, how can you look at potentially moving towards using the dollar a lot less, but creating more infrastructure for uh, more local currencies.
0: Okay, again, we'll come on to that. Aina uh, Tanjin in Beijing. So, BRICS is not competing with anyone, said Vladimir Putin, president of Russia. But, but that's not the case, is it? It's, isn't this all about putting BRICS plus at the centre of world affairs, creating a you know a new world economic order?
3: Well, not exactly. I mean, let's uh, go back a ways and, and talk about the uh, G7, G8, whatever it was called back then. Uh, those are supposed to be the leading nations. They were supposed to be guiding the, the world order and economically, etc. And then uh, they were not useful uh, during the economic crisis, the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. So you had the emergence of the G20, uh, basically to do exactly what the G8 uh, G7, G8 at that time, uh, could not do. Uh, and then, flash forward, uh, what you have is a group of middle powers who have been, in essence, denied access uh, to, you know, any kind of, uh, the, the kind of economic and political power that they feel that they uh, deserve. Uh, and there's a huge vacuum. Uh, the G- G20, G7 have not been able to uh, come forward. They were not very— uh, very helpful when it came to the COVID, and they're certainly not being very helpful when it comes to the economic problems that we have here. So, you know, the BRICS is a natural outcropping of countries um, that are united, in the sense that they were all uh, victimized by uh, colonialization. Um, And if you start adding them up, it's interesting. If you take the global south, and then also um, the Central Asia. You have about 160 countries. Well, what do they have? They have the majority of the world's resources, and uh, they have markets, and they have production. And the question then becomes: If they come together and they start doing what uh, you know, you had happened with OPEC, uh, they could instead of uh, asking for uh, you know hundreds of billions of dollars to uh, deal with climate change and start demanding that they get fair price for their natural resources, and for the production.
0: Interesting. Ben, what do you make of that? And also this point, that the fact that, you know, you have China and Russia at loggerheads, rising tensions with the United States and the West, and now BRICS is, is to add countries to its team that are openly antagonistic to the West, like Iran. This is just basically becoming an anti-Western bloc, isn't it?
1: Not yet. Not yet. Uh, I mean, that's the, the process they've just started on, is they're trying to work out some modus operandi. Because, you know, China, Russia, they need India, Brazil, uh, South Africa, less so, but also on board. And uh, Brazil and India have made it very clear um, that they don't want to have confrontation with the, uh, with the West, in so much as they have relations, good relations and investment and what have you. And so they've got to find out within themselves um, how they're going to work this. And they were just at the beginning of the process. I mean, we just had like the first serious discussion. But nevertheless, you know, people were, were lobbying. Uh, Russia was pushing for Iran to be included. Uh, Brazil was pushing for Argentina to be included. And um, they're going to uh, have this this disparate group. But yes, I mean, it it is, I think, inevitable that they're going to clash with the West to some extent. And as my colleague just pointed out, um, a lot of people said, look, this group's not going to work because they don't have enough in common, uh, you know, ideologically or system-wise. But it's not about what they have in common, it's about what they control. And between them, Central Asia, They control the um, the the addition of Saudi Arabia was particularly significant because now the the new the BRICS plus control forty two percent of the world's oil production, and they were already cooperating in a commercial sense with OPEC plus, but now they're cooperating on a political level. And Russia itself controls you know huge uh, amounts of um, raw materials, metals, minerals. China uh, also controls huge amounts of process rare earths and things like the um, electric vehicle revolution can't happen if China starts to hold those things back. And so the potential for a really nasty clash is there. But I think everybody's sort of you know edging their way forward, trying to find out how this is going to work. And I think people like the States are going to be caught up short and going to have to make some sort of compromises. Um, And we're in a new, like, undefined era as the emerging world emerges and starts to demand things, starts to ask for its voice to be uh, heard. And either the West is going to take that into account and this could go smoothly, or it's not, and then it could get ugly. Right.
0: As far as BRICS internally, or BRICS plus internally is concerned, Irina, uh, how, how will they avoid those clashes that Ben alludes to when you've got countries with very different economies and and very different foreign policy objectives. How can they uh, be cohesive in a way forward?
2: Look, many have come to say that this move to include these, these countries at the moment actually dilutes the power of BRICS politically because it's difficult to reach the consensus. At the moment, it seems that most of the geographic activity is slow to encapsulate, you know, the full potential of South America, and perhaps this could be the future strategy to look at another phase of expansion. But if you look at the clustering right now, Egypt, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iran, this gives BRICS a kind of strategic Middle East, North Africa look, while these countries come with significant challenges of their own, like we're saying. Egypt and Ethiopia had an impasse regarding the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam, China's done a lot of heavy uh, lifting in terms of Saudi Arabia and Iran to um, broker some kind of reconciliation, but this does not erase, you know, years of competing foreign policies between Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iran in the region. Even Argentina and Iranian relations have been immensely tense, but bringing in one or two without the other isolates another or the other potentially pushing them to take destabilizing decisions uh, for the region, if you so will. From one perspective, the BRICS could be moving to have a stronger economic impetus. But what if, or does this show a strategic decision to shift attention away from the Indo-Pacific, for example, as an anticipated theater of play, at least for the next few years to come? And you saw, you know, the proposition of Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, where some have intimated that they needed more time to understand, you know, the ASEAN implications and impacts creating some kind of BRICS Indo-Pacific anchor. But shifting attention back to the Middle East from the Indo-Pacific, does this contain, you know, the military-industrial complex in that region while tapping into critical minerals and creating new markets?
0: Ina, Ina Tanger, you mentioned climate change. This is a very good example of the potential for differences. On the face of it, we have different priorities with, say, uh, Brazil and with China. Brazil, we're under President Lula, very much uh, pro-environment and prioritising environmental issues. China uh, still emitting on a huge scale. Is that going to be a stumbling block? Or, conversely, might it make China more conducive to play ball, not being hectored by the West?
3: Uh, I, I don't understand why you, you say that China is behind the wall. I mean, you know, th- there's a lot of things. For instance, uh, there's always this thing that uh, China's uh, building coal plants. Well, what they actually do is they'll close down, a, you know, 40, 30, 30 or 40 coal plants, and they'll build one that is much more efficient and less polluting. Uh, they're doing this as a stopgap. They have plans, and as we know, uh, China generally tends to meet um, any kind of— uh, uh, deadlines that they uh, set for themselves. So I, I, I wouldn't be worried about that. Also, China is the leader in the uh, electric car industry, also photovoltaics and wind energy. So they're going along the same line. This idea that they're somehow at loggerheads, I, I think is wrong. All right. Let me put um, it in a different way. I, I then, I know. Them, yeah. it, perhaps
0: it can can BRICS Plus be a force for good in the fight against climate change then?
3: Yeah, I can. But here's the problem. Um, the BRICS cannot uh, have everybody join. And the reason is, as uh, my colleague said, you dilute the decision-making power. But I do think as a middle power uh, representing these different regions, they can go back to uh, the G7, who have not come forward uh, with their promises. There was a promise of $100 billion a year and um, this was supposed to expand over many years, only 10 percent of it has been delivered. And of that 10 percent, guess what? Most of the projects somehow benefit developed countries. And it's dubious as whether they're actually going to produce any kind of real environmental effect. So, with a different entity representing these regions, they can go back and say, look, you you folks have to, uh, you know, pony up. Because right now, there's nobody told Uh, You know, the developed world accountable. Think about it. You can't go to the United Nations. You can't go anywhere. So right now, the BRICS is the best chance of getting some sort of real environmental action, because they have leverage. And this is the only thing that is respected, despite all the uh, high-sounding rhetoric about how we believe in the rule of law and international order. The fact is, uh, the West, especially the U.S., lately, has been running roughshod over everybody, starting wars, breaking treaties. Uh, you know, it, it it just goes on undermining international institutions like the WTO by refusing to appoint appellate judges. So I, I do think that it can be a force for good. I don't see it as ideological. There's too many differences. But I do see it as a grouping. Remember, they do have something in common. Every single one of these nations uh, was victimized by colonialization at one point or another. Uh, okay. So it's a, it's Actually, a completely different grouping.
0: All right, that brings me on to my next point, because uh, there's... Let me take you back to the 1950s. Uh, the original non-aligned movement was set up. Um, Presidents Nasser of Egypt, uh, President Tito of then Yugoslavia and President Nero of India. Uh, it was quite successful, wasn't it? But then it, it turned back to the West in the 1980s. Are, are there lessons to be learned from that, Ben?
1: I mean, it was the first attempt, but, I mean, things have changed dramatically this time round in so much as... Um, non alliance in those days uh, they were relatively weak and you know sort of empires were at the height of their power. And what's changed now is that um, the whole balance has shifted towards emerging markets and it's a derogatory term in a way. Um, however that's 40 percent of the world's population and on 25 uh, percent in terms of GDP nominal but if you look at it at PPP, the parity purchasing power, then the emerging world is now richer than the developed world. And I think that's their point is that, look, we're actually starting to be in charge. And I agree, I I think we all agree that there's nothing ideological uh, uniting these countries. I think the glue that's holding them together is a sort of enemy at the gates mentality of like we're being ignored by the rest of the world and we shouldn't be. And I think the way this is going to work is that they're going to be pragmatic as emerging markets, they're dealing with lots of problems. Um, and it's not a question of values or ideology or, or philosophy. It's simply, you know, we've got things to fix. Um, they're pointing, for example, at the currency, at the dollar's use, the domination of the dollar in the world trading system, uh, which was a result of Bretton Woods. Um, and they're very unhappy with that because that gives the states enormous amounts of power. And Russia, in particular, is the case in point, in so much as suddenly it had half its reserves confiscated. And it's been banned from the financial system, and and that's caused a huge problem. And Iran the same problem, and um, China's looking at that, India's looking at that, and they're very worried. And this is where the enemy at the gate thing comes from. Russia's already in conflict with um, the states as is Iran, but India, China, South Africa, the other emerging markets are like, well, we're going to have a run-in with the states at some point, and then will they do the same to us? You know, confiscate our hard currency reserves, collapse our economies. I mean, Russia is strong enough or toxic, uh, enough so that it can survive this, but smaller countries can't. And this is, I think, another reason why they're all running to the, the emerging world is uh, the Global South is running to this, this BRIC organization, because they need some support. They need someone to stand up to the West and represent their interests. And as my colleague said, there's nowhere else to go. Um, the UN is dominated by the Security Council, that can't get you anywhere. Uh, there's no international court you can turn to. Um, and so the BRICS is is the alternative pole. And it's attracting a lot of interest because of that.
0: Aina, tell us about the new development bank and this issue that uh, Ben is talking about here, de-dollarization, and, and the plans to lend using the home country's currency of BRICS members.
3: Well, it's, it's not theoretical anymore. I mean, the, just before the meeting, they, um, they floated. Uh, rand bonds. So, what this does is, by putting uh, bonds out in rand, that means they'll be repaid in rand, which means that it takes an enormous amount of pressure off the the country in question, because they don't have to worry about, you know, what's going to happen to the dollar. That that adds something. Now, of course, those—if you're investing money from outside, of uh, South Africa, and you're buying rand bonds. You do have to worry about it, but it transfers the risk to those who are more capable of doing it. Investors can hedge their position; they can make decisions. Whereas people who are trying to get money are generally in in the lesser position because they have to take whatever comes. Uh, the fact that the rand bonds were oversubscribed by many, many times, and they um, hit and went above their target bodes very well. But there's. There's going to have to be more than just uh, one, uh, bond rating, uh, one bond rating, one bond Uh They're going to have to have markets that can handle this. Uh, obviously, within this grouping, you have uh, you know, UAE, which is you know <laughs> would be happy to garner some of that business. Obviously, China can uh, do part of it, um, but you know there's there's a long way to go before the dollarization and everything like that. That's that's a little far off. Uh, but this whole issue about hedging, about having more money directly, uh, be, especially between countries that are trading. Why should they be using dollars when they uh, can trade directly in their currencies to the value of the trade that they have? So there's a lot of de-risking going on, and that's the correct term, de-risking. It's right. a financial term. <laughs> it was never meant to be a political term. OK.
0: So, Arina, so, uh, this is more about uh, finding an alternative to the system rather than an alternative to the dollar.
2: Well, it's called de-dollarization. It's really about creating more trust in local currencies. And in the immediate sense, it is coming down to business. As we're saying, you know, the dollar has been used extensively over decades. So there's liquidity, security, reusability um, that's very much attached to it. And traders want to make sure they receive the value they bargain for. That's why there is such, you know, Trust still placed in this and why it's expected to take a little bit longer to achieve it. But that's not to say that cross-border payment systems are already in place and banks are already working with them. You know, they the BRICS started this interbank cooperation mechanism in 2010. And they what they did was they they create a lot of investing in regional financial services, they leapfrog technology. So you see a lot of Um, low-hanging fruits, as the BRICS leaders would call them, um, reaching for those kind of low-hanging fruits and building a lot of relationships between banks. If I can draw this back to how South Africa was engaging the continental free trade area specifically, which was part of the the BRICS uh, summit this year, you know, This comes back to creating institutions as well uh, where where Africans can benefit from. And in relating payments and local currencies and building this up, you know, you have the Pan-African Payment Settlement System, Mm -hmm. and from that, they really want to create um, markets in addition that can flourish from these local currency. Okay. So I'm
0: just going to jump in there. I'm sorry to jump in. We're just coming to the end of the programme. Ben, sure. I just want to give you the last word. Uh, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was in Johannesburg. He, he echoed uh, the BRICS' long-standing calls for reform of the uh, UN Security Council, of the IMF and the World Bank. Is that going to happen anytime soon, do you think? Briefly, if you would?
1: I don't think so. It's going to be too difficult. I mean, the permanent members on the Security Council are quite happy with that, uh, although... Someone like uh China and, and Russia are lobbying, you know, there, there's no representative from Africa. There's one from Asia, there's three from Europe. And um the the others are gonna resist that because they don't want to upset the balance of power, which is again very much skewed towards the West. And with the other institutions, I mean that's going on. I think that's happening slowly. That China is busy rallying people in the General Assembly and um they're building up a voting block. So I think with the with the bodies themselves, we could see other people being appointed, but then it's a long, slow process. And I think this whole thing with the rise of the BRICS, we're right at the very beginning of what will take decades to happen. But again, I think it's um, inevitable given the size of these markets, the speed they're growing, and the the importance of the global economy so that it's not to be resistant. It's just a question of how this process works, either smoothly or or, uh, uh, in a less smooth way where people start fighting with each other.
0: All right. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you to all our guests, to Ben Harris, Arina Murasan and Aina Tangen. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Laura Khan, Sarah Gill and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Eli Elhani and the programme was edited by Anil Anandan, Khaled Sultan and Jodafrez. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Monday for our next edition.
3: This week on The Take, how the starving son of Muammar Gaddafi might unlock a mystery that's puzzled pundits for 45 years. That's The Take on Al Jazeera. Get it wherever you listen.